This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 28, Projects in Depth, Glamour and Glass. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And Mary's in the hot seat this time. Wee-hee. We are going to make you talk in depth about writing this book, and we'll start you like we started each of the others of us, which is give us a little bit of a summary. All right. And first, let me remind everyone that with these episodes, we'll be talking about plot spoilers. Um, so Glamour and Glass is the second book. I wrote it to be a standalone, but it's basically... Um, uh, Jane and Vincent go to the continent for their honeymoon. It is 1815, and the thing about 1815 is that Napoleon is in exile at the beginning and then comes out of exile, and there's this little thing called Waterloo. So little thing. A little yeah. tiny thing. Yeah. So it's in the days leading up to Waterloo. Okay. And um, first thing I'll, I'll fire at you is I remember you talking once about the difference in tone between book one and book two, or it's really standalone one, standalone two, with the same characters. It seemed like you consciously changed your tone. Yes. Uh, Shades of Milk and Honey, we marketed as Jane Austen with magic, and I was really trying to write a book without breaking the Jane Austen mold. Uh-huh. With Glamour and Glass, I, want, I felt like I had done that, and mm-hmm. I wanted to explore the rest of the world because I liked it. So, um, so I pretty much abandoned the Jane Austen plot model. Among other things, I have a married couple. Right which um, she doesn't do, and, and you know, romance is about getting two people to hook up, so one of the challenges in Glamour and Glass was how to maintain romantic tension between a married couple and also explore what it's like to be a newlywed. Okay. With magic. With magic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, now, was this at all, I'm just, is this, was this all a market decision, or was it all, I mean, was it, were there? Yeah. No, um, it, it was actually, um, a decision that I made before I sold Shades of Milk and Honey, it started with a question that David Brin asked me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling him about the magic system, and he asked me what happens when a woman becomes pregnant. Because glamour, um, which is pulling light out of the air, essentially yeah. takes energy, um, the same way running up a hill does. And you can overheat, you can become faint, and so he asked me what happens. And I thought about it for a while and decided that it would be contraindicated, mm-hmm. um, that it would be something that because it would be like trying to run a marathon while with child. Um, so what I did, and hello, spoiler number one, uh, Jane, uh, Jane gets pregnant in this book. Um, so I wanted to explore what that was like. And part of what was happening also is that my husband and I were um, going through the process of deciding not to have children. Mm. So some of this was me, um, me kind of looking at that, and, and I was also curious about whether or not I could write a novel about magic in which my main character has the ability to do magic removed from her. She mm. spends the majority of the book being unable to do magic. Okay. So it's, it's unable as opposed to just... No, she, you can actually physically do magic, it's just you have to make the choice not to. Okay. You know, yes, she can... Um, and in fact, in, in the world that I, I have in my head, um, female glamorists uh, who work full-time uh, generally don't conceive, um, or rather they conceive, but they, they miscarry like in, okay. in right. the first month. Um, so part of what happens, uh, and this, is, this part is off the page, um, or I don't talk about it explicitly, but the, uh, the process of leaving London, you know, getting ready to leave London, uh, taking a ship, traveling to uh, 
to Binch in Belgium, which is where the, the book takes place, gave her, um, gave her enough time without doing magic that she could conceive. She could conceive. Okay, so my question about this magic system, it is a magic that is kind of designed to be unobtrusive mm -hmm. so that you could maintain the same Austenite setting in book one. Right. Once you expanded that and started looking at the rest of the world that had this cool power, how did, did, did that change the way you looked at the magic? No. Um, I knew how the magic worked outside of... Uh, the drawing room, which is all I cover in Hello Kitty. Um, sorry, we've just been <laughs> That's all, you all I cover in Hello Kitty. <laughs> yeah, she <laughs> writes a lot of fan fiction <laughs> that most people don't know. Where did that cat come from? I the door know. is closed. Yeah. No, Emily came oh, down okay. and let the cat in. Sorry. Okay. For those of you who are not watching the video <laughs> feed, a cat just jumped on my shoulder and then onto my lap. Very cute. Um, so, so I had to know how the magic worked outside of the drawing room, but in Shades of Milk and Honey, all I could show was the drawing room. Mm -hmm. But I had to know how it functioned so I knew how it affected the rest of the world. So does it have much broader effects? Yes. So um, in Glamour and Glass, we get to meet, uh, we get to actually see it in action a little bit with the, uh, the glamorists who are part of the army. Uh, th and I have them attached to the royal engineers who did most of the you know, bridge construction and yeah. things like that. So basically what they do is they create camouflage. Um, and Glamour, in order to do something that's really convincing, it actually takes quite a bit of time. So they have to arrive early and set up, you know, it's like they can set up a tree that isn't actually on the, the battlefield hoping that someone will use it for cover and that their people will know you can shoot straight through this tree. Um, and then they can also, like, in the heat of battle, they can make uh, bright sound. And, uh, bright, no, bright sound. <laughs> oh, wait, that's understood. I was yeah. hoping that there was actually bright sound. Yes. That's, that's um, cool. But they can, they can do those things which will stun and startle people. But because it's an illusionary thing, you, you react as if you've just been hit with a very loud noise. But it doesn't actually deafen you. It just it will disorient you for a moment. Yeah. All right, digging into this, um, I want to like help our, our listeners, hopefully, to write better books on their uh, mm -hmm. themselves. Um, what did you do to build the plot of this book? Like, how did you approach that? Um, well, the the uh, as I mentioned, that I, I needed to find a source of conflict, and one of the um, one of the sources of conflict that often happens with a, a new married couple is. Um, is learning when to reveal something and when to hold something back. Okay. So Vincent has actually been sent to uh, Belgium as a spy. Okay. And um, he can't tell Jane this. Okay. So she is feeling, she's spending the, um, that gave me the opportunity essentially to externalize a conflict that she was having, which is, if I can't do glamour, am I good for anything? And right. because Vincent is spending time withholding information for other okay. reasons, she thinks that the distance she is feeling right. is because of the pregnancy. That works very well. That's, that's an excellent way to, to cross a bunch of plots like that. Is mm -hmm. it still primarily character-driven plot then? It's still primarily character-driven plot. At, at a certain point, of course, he does have to tell her. And then right. we, it, this is a much more swashbuckling book. Okay. Um, so do we get to Waterloo at the end? Uh, yes. Well, actually, no. Uh, we don't. Um, because, uh, and hello, spoiler, um, <laughs> because we have different magic. Um, one of the things that Vincent and Jane are working on 
um, is the title of the book, which is Creating a Way to Record Glamour. And they actually figure out how to do that in glass. Okay. And, um, and that gives the British a um, technical advantage over the French. The French don't even know this is possible. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the real history, um, they clash for the first time at the Battle of Quatre Bras with Napoleon. And, um, and it's more or less a draw. The, the British are, um, do not come out of that well, and, and a lot of it is miscommunication. Um, but in my world, they win at Quatre Bras. So going forward from here, like, you know, the, uh, there's a, a Waterloo Bridge in London, which is Quatre Bras Bridge. And uh, cool. so, okay. so we actually, the Battle of mm -hmm. Quatre Bras is the... Uh, now, now, now so thinking Waterloo of this happens. as an alternate history, are, are there things like that seeded all through the backstory of this, where the history of the world has been slightly different the whole time? Yes, um, although I don't usually highlight those because then I have to... Then uh, you have to explain them. Well, no, this, this is the issue with alternate history yeah. is, mm -hmm. you know, if you change things 4,000 years back, really you have nothing like modern history. Right. Yeah. So it's just one of the affectations you have to accept mm -hmm. yeah. with this genre. Which is, which is why... Um, so, like, one of the things that I, I decided was that if I gave everybody glamour and it's more or less balanced the same way technology was balanced in our world, that the the balance of power remained more or less the same. Um, the same people still win all the same battles in right. and the same so, nation's form. So I felt like I could have them win a day early with with Waterloo. It, it will, in fact, um, one of the things that it, it will have an impact on is uh, that not as many people die. Mm -hmm. um, it's still a pretty horrific battle, but, uh, but the body count is a little bit different. Um, and so that, that would have an impact going forward. Um, there's, there's a point in history that I looked at, um, actually for book four, which I wanted to use, but I'm not going to, so, um, which is that uh, Charlotte, who was uh, the Prince Regent's daughter, um, died in childbirth and didn't have to. And if she hadn't, she would have been the queen instead of Victoria. Uh -huh. And I look at that, and I'm like, oh, I want to use that point, but it would mm -hmm. change the history too much for what I'm doing with the book. So well, I, Suddenly the Victorian era is, is the, not. Yes. yes. And, and so, so when I look at whether or not I change history, I have to look at, it's not just, this is cool, this would be a lot of fun to do, but it's also, how does this affect the books that I want to do going forward? And I really don't want to change history that much, as tempting as it is with this, mm -hmm. you know, with this particular set of books. There are other books. Yeah. That, like well, with, with, with these books, you are playing with history. Right. And you don't get to play with all the toys you like right. if you exactly. throw them away and buy a different set of toys. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Now, as I recall, book of the week. Oh, book, of the book of the week. Okay. Book of the week this week is me. Uh, this just came out. A uh, few days ago, actually, it's The Hollow City. It's my new book. Um, it is about, uh, it's kind of the same genre as the John Cleaver book, supernatural psychological thriller, but it doesn't have John Cleaver in it. It's all new, standalone thriller. 
um, about a guy who is schizophrenic and realizes partway through the book that some of the monsters he sees are real and no one will trust him and he can't even sure he, he he's not even sure he can trust himself so very fun book very quick creepy thriller okay well if you'd like to continue supporting us in this wacky endeavor of ours audiblepodcast.com slash excuse and uh, you can start a 14-day free trial membership and listen to Hollow City by Dan Wells. And as of this recording, I don't think we know who's narrating it yet. No, no we don't. Not yet. But we are going to be doing this very thing to Hollow City next week. Well, writing, in three, three weeks. weeks. Next in time. three weeks. So That's you right. have time to buy it and read it. Mm-hmm. And then I will be spoiling it in a similar interview on the 31st. So waste no time. Mary, uh, Naming, and in conjunction with naming, I seem to recall there being a little bit of a kerfluffle around the word count. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So there's a a great source online, which uh, is the Georgian Name Index, which shows you all of the names that were recorded uh, during uh, Georgian England. And that's very handy. So I just kind of double-checked to make sure that those names are, are... that the names I use are on there. At the same time, I'm not particularly slavish about it because people often will, you know, you'll have wild outliers. Like Melody's name, which is Jane's sister, Melody is not a at all typical name for the period. Uh, Count. Well, and you mentioned Tiffany effect in a previous the Tiffany cast. Tiffany effect. Yes, so. the Tiffany effect. Uh, so, you know, we, we do, I did try to avoid names that sounded too contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, the count is a mistake that I made in um, in book in, in Shades of Milk and Honey. There are no counts in England. There are earls and count and their wives are countesses. And I had um, Vincent's father being a viscount, and then realized that I needed to up his up his rank up his rank, and uh, and thought, well, I'll make him a count. And had been reading about countesses, and had forgotten, or maybe never known. Um, <laughs> that he should that the correct rank would be an earl so he is referred to in shades of milk and honey as as the count of verberry and um and you know what i just had to retcon that for uh for glamour and glass well, so so did you retcon or did you make an attempt to fold it into this alternate history nope. and say they're called counts. Nope, I just retconned. <laughs> and and I, why I, did you make that decision? That's the brave thing to do. That's the <laughs> that's the the yeah. Oh, yeah got just, that wrong. Yep, owning I just mentioned I put it in the acknowledgments in at the back of the book. Um, there's a bit about the history, and I just said, look, I got this wrong in book one. There's actually another thing I got wrong in uh, in Glamour and Glass, and that's in the very first scene. And I caught this. Um, you know, we were it was. As we were getting ready to go to press, um, the uh, I've got people going in two by two to dinner, which is not the way they did it in Regency, and I would have had to restructure the entire scene. Like the scene, just the, how did they go into dinner? The ladies processed in in order of rank, and then the gentlemen, and you sat wherever you wanted, except for the host and hostess, who always sat at the head and foot. Everybody else got to sit where they wanted. And you can see it. I mean, it's, it's like it's in um, wow. Pride and Prejudice. You can see there's a point where, um, where uh, Mr. Bingley walks into the room and looks around and spots uh, Jane in that one and sits next to her. And I had never, I had always thought it was handled the way the Victorians did it, which is that you had place cards, you had assigned seating. And place cards and, and somebody reads your name yes. as you come in, and that's what mm-hmm. I would have assumed. Yep. And... Nope. You, it's, there was, a, assigned seating was not a thing yet. Oh, man, Regency's and... a better era to 
Regency is actually a lot more casual than Victorian. Yeah. Um, now I did I did have to show, and this was one of the things that was tricky, was that the differences between England and France. I, I had read extensively about the French Regency, I mean the English Regency, but I hadn't spent that much time exploring the French Empire. And not only are the fashions different, but the way they serve dinner is different. And I had done all of my research on how they served dinner. I just hadn't actually Let's made that discovery. Let's talk about that research more. A lot of our re listeners ask about research. Uh, what did you do to prepare for this book? Um, as much as possible, I try to go to primary sources. Um, but what I do is I start off by reading an overview to kind of give me an idea of, of where I need to be looking for things. For this one, I read a book called... Um, the Social History, uh, Dancing into Battle, The Social History of Waterloo, okay. which was basically um, exactly what it sounds like. It was looking at the lives of British people living in Brussels at the time. Okay. And um, that gave me a really good overview. And then I, I use other people's research, which is that I then go to their bibliography and look at what books they have checked out. Okay. And then I grab the ones that seem most useful. Um, and so that gives me an overview. And then as I'm writing... Um, I do what I call spot research, which mm -hmm. is I will hit a point where I need to know, um, you know, what kind of wood are they using at the forge? Actually, I didn't need to know that, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, but that's, a, that's a tiny detail, and so I'll just bracket it and then go back and look it up later. Okay. Every now and then that catches me out, and I have to rewrite a scene because this thing that I thought I could fake mm -hmm. uh, was actually much larger, like, you know, the order in which you go into dinner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Turns out they don't use wood at the forge, they use coal. Yes, exactly. Something I mean, like exa that. That yeah. kind of thing. That's how I do almost all of my research. Spot research? Spot research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, for, for the benefit of, of the listeners, because this is a question we get a lot, um, how do you know when you've done too much, too much research? How do you keep yourself from just throwing everything? You know, I've studied the crap out of this period. I want to use all that time. How do, how do you scale it back and make sure you only use what you need? Well, I basically assume that my readers are smart, and I tend to underwrite anyway. So I will write it and treat it just like a regular fantasy or science fiction, that I, I feed in the information, um, you know, just, just the way you would handle any other plot exposition, uh, that I, I try to only give them the information that they need to actually understand what is happening in the scene and the, and the plot. And then I hand it to... Um, my alpha readers, which are different than my beta readers, the alpha readers get it way, way, I mean, I haven't even spell-checked it sometimes, and ask them what confuses them. <laughs> that would be dangerous for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I ask them what confuses them. And the things that confuse them are where I need to go back and add information. Hmm. Cool. So, All right. so you underwrite and then add more as necessary. Yeah. Good Usually. advice. That is not something most of our readers or our listeners are probably doing. I, my experience is that new writers are overriding quite a bit. The, the other thing I think that happens to me is because I research so heavily, um, a lot of the things that I know wind up becoming background knowledge for me, and I assume that they are common knowledge for other people. Whereas I think that if you... So, so they become less, ooh, look at this really cool thing that ah. I found. Mm -hmm. So it's like you transcend the danger of over-researching by going a step further to the point that <laughs> all the, the minuscule things just become part of your understanding. And it's the little 
you know, the things, the level beyond that you can latch onto and put in that would actually be cool to someone who even knew the period. Yeah, I seem to, what I seem to be doing is like for the year leading up to when I actually start writing it, mm -hmm. um, I'm doing like just research kind of all the way through so that by the time I sit down to write and, and then working on other projects while I'm doing mm -hmm. the research. Um, and so by the time I sit down to write, it's all background knowledge for me. Did you outline this book? Absolutely. Okay. I'm a, I'm a, what kind of outline did you use? Um, it's a chapter by chapter outline, and okay. then within that, I have scene breakdowns. So chapter by chapter, paragraph about each chapter. About okay. sometimes more, okay. um, and sometimes like if I know exactly how I want dialogue to play out, like if the scene mm. is vivid enough in my head, I'll do a rough sketch of the scene uh -huh. where I don't throw in the um, any of the setting. I just put the character interactions down. So sometimes when I actually get into the novel, I will just grab that chunk, drop it in, and then mm. add the setting. Was this the book that, uh, uh, when we talked Hollywood Formula last season? This with, is the uh, book. This yes. is the one where... Ah, yes, and I can actually talk about that now, um, since we, I've already warned you about spoilers. Um, mm -hmm. So, in the, uh, when we were talking about the Hollywood Formula, I had, in the book, um, I originally had uh, Jane and Vincent being reconciled, Napoleon being defeated, and uh, Jane coming to accept... Uh, the the whole pregnancy issue um, happening in three different chapters and in this one they all happen pretty much back to back um, and it it completely changed the way things read um, for my for my alpha and beta readers mm. well for my beta readers my alphas got it because you made them cry as I recall yeah yeah that that has been the the response that I've been getting from people. Now, you know, at this point, the book has been out for a while, and it's hard to say, you know, my alpha readers and beta readers are predisposed to like me, so the fact that I made them cry, <laughs> uh, we'll have to see how the actual reviews are. We'll see, we'll see what the <laughs> comments look like under this, uh, under this episode. <laughs> see what people think. Uh, but it was um, one of the things that, that the way I approach writing is that if if a book does not have that I'm working on or a short story does not have an emotional impact for me, I know it's not going to have an emotional impact for my readers. Now, just because it has an emotional impact for me doesn't necessarily guarantee anyone, but it did go from me knowing that, you know, it's like, well, everything is technically working, but I was not having a kick at the end. And right now it is, there's the, the final, uh, the last half of the final chapter, it's, it's actually difficult for me to get through that. I had, I've read it aloud twice, and it's gif difficult for me to get through that without, without crying. Um, but, you know, I love my characters, so. All right. Excellent. Well, <clears throat> writing prompt. Dan. Writing prompt. Everyone's head turned toward you, so we're going to make you do it. Okay. Well, I want to take the, uh, the cool idea that Mary didn't use and have uh, Queen Victoria's older sister not die and become the queen and write about how that changes England. Hey, nice work. Except it wasn't actually her older sister. It was oh, her cousin, but Her cousin. Okay. The other person. Mm -hmm. She has an older sister and... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do that one because I want to write the Queen Charlotte one. <laughs> this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. 
They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 